Can you hear us? Yep, I can hear you. There we go. Let's make a podcast. Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Are you ready? (laughs) (laughs) Episode number one. Oh my gosh. Here we go. This is How to Save a Planet, the podcast where, what do we do? The podcast where we answer the question, what are the key things we, humanity, need to do about climate change? And how do we make those things happen? I'm Alex Bloomberg. I'm Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, and this is How to Save a Planet. Ooh, theme music. (laughs) You could argue, Ayana, that one of the most basic things that we as humans need to do to help slow climate change is figure out a different way of making electricity. The electricity that powers our homes and businesses, our computers and air conditioners— Just about all of that is generated by power plants. And historically, those power plants have overwhelmingly used fossil fuels. Right now, around a quarter of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions comes from burning fossil fuels to make electricity. A quarter of greenhouse gases is from making electricity. So, really, we have to stop burning fossil fuels to make electricity. And there's one fossil fuel in particular that we should eliminate first. Coal. Burning coal creates way more greenhouse gases than other fossil fuels, and it's dirtier in general. It produces lots of other pollutants, which cause smog and are linked to all sorts of illnesses, like asthma and cancer. And it leaves behind this really toxic ash and pollutes the water. It's a total mess. So coal, one of the worst fossil fuels we can burn. Bad for our health, bad for the earth. And today we are going to tell the story of a place that actually got rid of coal, a place where coal used to reign supreme until they decided to blow everything up and start over. And when we say blow everything up, we literally mean they blew it up. Have you seen this video? I have not seen this video. I've heard about this video. So this is a video of these two massive towers that were part of a big coal plant that are being imploded. All right, so here it goes. They just blew out the bottom and they're just collapsing straight out and like pulverized. They just kneecapped these cooling towers. And those cooling towers that got kneecapped, those are part of the Brayton Point Power Plant, which was demolished in April of 2019 in the town of Somerset, Massachusetts. There was another smaller coal plant in town that was also shut down. And together, these coal plants powered a huge chunk of the state. And for decades, blowing up those towers, shutting down those plants, is something the town of Somerset never would have considered. It would have seemed insane. Everybody loved them. This is Patricia Haddad. She grew up in Somerset. Her mom is from Somerset. And today on the show, we're going to hear the story of why Pat Haddad and the people in Somerset decided to blow up this thing that almost everyone had loved. And we'll hear what blowing up that coal plant can tell all of us about moving to a world where we no longer burn fossil fuels to make our electricity. That's all coming up on our show today. Pat Haddad, the woman we just heard from, saying that everyone in Somerset loved the Brayton Point coal plant, she said the reason for that love was simple. That plant and its smaller cousin, they represented one thing, money. The tax revenue from those plants was the town's meal ticket. 
for 20 years, you saw this very small town have all of the facilities that um, a big city had. Full-time fire, police, excellent schools. We were the envy of every little town around and and the envy of the city. Because of all those amenities that you guys have. All of the amenities and, um, you know, the tax revenue. So even though the laundry was dusted with coal ash and some people really worried about asthma rates, for lots of people in town, including Pat, this was something they felt they had to accept. In fact, when Pat grew up and got a job in politics and eventually became a state representative, she gave herself a nickname, the Queen of Coal. But the reign of coal shall not last forever. And one of the first people who was aware that coal's reign was about to come to an end was this guy. My name is Ted Wheeler. And um, I started at Brayton Point in uh, 1982 or so, around there. Ted Wheeler was a mechanic at Brayton Point. He fixed all the machinery, the pumps, the valves, the pulverizers, coal feeders. Pretty much every piece of machinery in that plant he could take apart and put back together. You know, we provided 20% of the electricity to Massachusetts. I used to uh, conduct tours of school kids in Massachusetts, and I'd ask them, you know, who made their breakfast with coal today? And everybody would say, ooh, not me, not me, you know? But in fact, uh, they all had, because they used electricity, it was coal, it was converted to electricity. Went to their house, they didn't have to see the coal, but it was still used. We thought we were the the heartbeat of New England, and uh, I still believe that today, that we were. But everything was about to change for Ted and the people who worked at the plant with him because of a new development that was happening across the country. Fracking. The fracking boom. It was huge. Right. In the mid-2000s, technologies emerged that allowed us to drill super deep through the rock and access these reserves of natural gas that we hadn't been able to get at before in a way that made economic sense. This was happening across the U.S. in places like Texas and Pennsylvania and the Dakotas. There were big environmental costs, pollution of drinking water, earthquakes, but frac gas was cheap, cheaper even than coal. Along comes fracking, and natural gas goes to $2 a million BTU. So like literally half of what coal costs. Yes, and couple that with the natural gas plant are almost twice as efficient, and they have a smaller footprint, less employees, no coal ash and things like that to deal with. So when gas went to, you know, half the price, twice the efficiency, it was almost overnight we were out of the game. And how did that show up for you? Like, what did you see? Well, we'd come in and they'd say, hey, uh, unit three, we took it down to minimum load last night, which was unheard of. And, uh, then you come in and, hey, they took, you know, you know, one and twos off the schedule for the weekend. And then, hey, uh, you know, we're not going to run one and two this week. As time passed, more and more units, more and more sections of the Brayton Point power plant sat idle. In 2011, rumors started to swirl that the plant would be closed down. And these rumors reached the queen of coal herself, Representative Pat Haddad. It became very obvious that the demise of coal was right around the corner. And I started to warn, you know, my town and say, you really, really have to look at this and you have to have a plan. And interestingly, the response was, they're too big to fail. (laughs) It was mostly disbelief that this could ever happen. But it did happen. 
In June of 2017, the Brayton Point power plant officially closed its doors. The single biggest industry and the single biggest taxpayer in Somerset was gone. And how are you feeling at this point? What's your view on all this? (laughs) Completely panicked. Completely panicked. What was your biggest fear about what would happen to Somerset without the coal plants? It's happening. It's happening. We've had five years of a decrease in taxes. And Mm -hmm. so the plant that was paying $16 million five years ago is paying less than a million now. So um, when you say, what was I thinking? I was truly, truly panicked. Oh, it was just the worst. It was the worst. Listening to Pat Haddad, it was the first time I really thought about what it would be like to be an elected official of a region that's really reliant on coal power as your source of tax revenue, that's funding all of your, you know, town services. It's it's a huge deal. And how do you replace that? Once the coal plant goes away, it's not like there's like another massive sort of industry that's ready to just take its place. Or is there? <laughs> well, it just so happened that Pat Haddad, in her panic, she's talking to everyone about this. And she happens to visit this other city, not too far away from Somerset, New Bedford. And New Bedford had been through what Somerset was going through. A bunch of its key industries were contracting, and it was looking for new sources of revenue, maybe a way to take advantage of their port infrastructure. And the folks in New Bedford had been looking around, talking to different people, and there were these industry leaders they introduced Pat Haddad to, who she found very intriguing. These people were from uh, Denmark, Germany, England, and these people had a much better story. Offshore wind. Offshore wind. This is where offshore wind enters the story of Pat Haddad and Somerset. When she's talking about offshore wind, she's talking about big commercial offshore wind farms, which are essentially these big windmills in the ocean, typically several miles offshore. And offshore, the winds are stronger, they're steadier. So these farms can generate more power than onshore wind facilities. And because so many big cities are located on the coasts, especially in the Northeast, Offshore wind has the potential to power huge swaths of the most populated parts of the country. So when it comes to climate solutions, wind is something environmentalists have been championing as one of the most powerful and cleanest forms of energy that we could be using. But offshore wind typically hasn't been something that's championed by fossil fuel nicknamed state legislators like (laughs) Pat Haddad when they're trying to fill a gigantic tax revenue hole in their municipal budgets. So how did it happen this time? After the break, we will learn how one of the greenest technologies out there turned into something the queen of coal would love. You made it through half an episode, Ayana. How's it feel? Um, I'm feeling super hosty. This is your first welcome back from the break. Welcome back from the break. How was your Ooh, break? It's like you've Should I do a radio voice? Welcome back from the break. No? Uh, yeah, no, no. That was good. That was good. Okay, that's enough. (laughs) In the second half of our first episode, we're going to be spending a lot of time with this guy. My name is Jeff Grabowski. For uh, about a decade, I was involved in developing offshore wind projects in the United States. So you are the guy who got the first wind offshore wind farm set up in the United States. Yeah, well, I, I led the team that did that for sure. 
Jeff Grabowski is the former CEO of a company called Deepwater Wind, an offshore wind company. And I'll just say, Ayana, I think that without Jeff Grabowski, Pat Haddad, the queen of coal, who we met in the first half, might never have given wind a second look. Without Jeff, there might not have been a domestic offshore wind industry for her to even look at. Which is maybe a little bit strange because before 2008, the idea of offshore wind had almost never entered his mind. (laughs) It honestly was not a topic I had ever really thought much about, to be perfectly honest with you. Hmm. Um, I wasn't an energy industry guy. I was a regulatory lawyer, a corporate lawyer, doing the kinds of things that corporate lawyers do. Uh, When one day I received a cold call from a company that was looking to put uh, offshore wind turbines off the coast of Rhode Island. And because Jeff specialized in complicated business deals, he told the people on the phone, basically, Are you nuts? (laughs) They'll never let you do that. I I was rattling off all the names of all the agencies that you'd have to go to get approval and then thinking about all the people who would be opposed and thinking about all the politicians who would get involved. And and it, it just seemed like this incredibly complicated undertaking that had like a really, really low probability. And all I could see were problems. Right. Which is probably why they were calling you. <laughs> That's exactly why they were calling me. <laughs> because they wanted to know, how do we get this done? You see, the people who were calling Jeff, they were not the first people to try and set up an offshore wind farm in the United States. Many people had tried, and many had failed. And one project in particular had become a cautionary tale for the entire industry. The Cape Wind Project. I actually remember this. The Cape Wind Project was first announced in 2001, and after I graduated from college, I was living in Woods Hole on Cape Cod. I was actually working on ocean policy for the first time, and it was super exciting to think about this project, and there was a lot of fanfare around it. Sarah, a big decision today by the Secretary of the Interior. Looks like a thumbs up to the Cape Wind Project. How do you feel about that? I think Cape Wind Project is a very good idea. It's a renewable resource, and our planet just needs more of that. The project was hailed as a big step forward in renewable energy for the entire region, one of the most liberal and progressive areas of the country. But very quickly, opposition to the project started to form. Mr. Moriarty, we just heard that uh, Secretary of the Interior Salazar has green-lighted the Cape Wind Project. What are your thoughts? Well, it's unfortunate, but not surprising. The lawsuits will be coming in, they'll be starting tomorrow, and it's going to be an awful long time before we see any wind turbines in Nantucket Sound. It's just the beginning. We haven't even begun to fight here on Cape Cod. I guarantee you, this is just the beginning. Mr. Moriarty, the guy you just heard claiming that the fight had just begun over wind turbines, he was right. Over the next decade and a half, opposition mounted. There were the usual suspects, like fossil fuel interests. But there was also opposition from other places, from some fishermen who were worried about access to their preferred fishing areas, and some Native American tribes who were concerned about impacts on culturally important places. And opposition from many wealthy landowners who were worried that the windmills would sully their view including wealthy liberals who had previously claimed to be in favor of renewable energy. High-profile residents like Senator Ted Kennedy have criticized the proposed site, believing it would obstruct their views. 
Makes me so angry to hear that. <laughs> Ted! A2, Ted Kennedy! Ted Kennedy, we needed you! <laughs> Eventually, the project died. Proponents spent over 16 years and $100 million trying to get it built, only to have it fail. But if anything, the spectacular quagmire that was the Cape Wind project made Jeff want to say yes to the people on the phone back in 2008, the ones who called asking for his help building a different offshore wind project. He seems like he's a bit of a masochist for complicated regulatory problems. <laughs> Definitely. It was really fascinating talking to him. The thing that would be my nightmare, he loved. And so he got to work. The lessons of Cape Wind in the front of his mind. He made a list of every single agency, local, state, and federal, that could possibly say no to his new project. He got meetings with all those agencies. And several years into it, things were moving forward. And then something came up that almost derailed the entire project. And that was probably the moment where I thought, oh no, we're, we're in trouble. This was five years into the project already. Jeff was at a meeting with a local town council in a small community on the Rhode Island coast. And one of the items on the agenda was something Jeff thought he had already solved. Where to land the cable that would bring in electricity from the farm. He didn't see any reason the town would oppose it. But they did. We were getting ready to build the thing the next year. I mean, we were really deep in the project. Uh, and how much had you spent already? Uh, it was in the tens of millions for sure. Did, and was that a thing where you thought like, oh, I don't know if this is, this might scuttle the project? Absolutely, yeah. I have a, the beach where we were not allowed to land that cable. I have a photograph of that beach on my wall. And I had it in my office because I never wanted to forget how close we were to losing mm. the project. I, I learned a lot of lessons in, that, in that, that particular failure. The most important lesson being people are f***ing insane about beaches. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Building the project, <laughs> permitting the project, lining up the constituencies, dealing with all the bureaucracies, all the government bureaucracies, state, local, and federal. That, it turned out, was the easy part. The hard part is saying to people in the Hamptons, it's really a good thing for you and for society that this transmission cable be landed here on this beach. I know it's a beach that you love. You're worried about having a transmission cable near your beach, but mm -hmm. that is still this huge hurdle to get over. And just to be clear, what, what are we talking about here? Are, are we talking about like a gigantic cable that comes up like a beached whale onto the beach and people have to sunbathe around it? What, what are we talking about? No, no, no. Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked that. No. So <laughs> the cable itself was about six inches in diameter. <laughs> no, this is what all the fuss is about? On top of the beach or it's under the beach? It's buried about 20 feet under the part of the beach where you'd be laying on oh your top. Oh my God. So this is not an eyesore. This is not going to, like, get in the way of your beach towel. You're not even going to know it's there. And this is not a new technology, right? Guess what? We've got cables under beaches all over the place right now. But to be clear, the, the number one barrier to clean, powerful energy for the entire eastern seaboard is people freaking out about a cable that's six inches wide that will be buried under a beach that they will never see and never feel. That's my top worry, yeah. Oh, my God. Now, I don't, we don't deserve to be saved. We really don't. 
The, the good news is that the things that you might think are really hard, we can do. Like the engineering, like we can build the turbines offshore. They're really big and they work and they're really efficient and they produce a lot of power. But mm-hmm. the one thing the engineers usually can't figure out is how to change the human heart. <laughs> They don't teach that in grad school. I can. Exactly. The hard part of this business is not, you know, do I use a left wing nut or a right wing nut? Do we need to send engineers to charm school? Is that the answer? All engineers must go to charm school and then we'll have offshore wind. It's not how to use the left wing nuts or the right wing nuts. You have to teach them how to talk to the left wing nuts. Charm all of the wing nuts. All the wing nuts. So Jeff eventually found another beach in Rhode Island and got the job done. And in 2016, four years behind their original schedule, the project was complete. The first commercial offshore wind project in the entire United States. And it made Jeff unique. He was the one person in the States who'd actually gotten one of these things built. Which is how Jeff Grabowski ended up crossing paths with Pat Haddad, the Queen of Coal from Somerset. Remember, she'd been meeting with all sorts of industry leaders, trying to figure out what to replace the Brayton Point coal plant with, what could make up for all those lost jobs and revenue. Jeff was one of the people that she met with. He was at that point now a CEO of a major offshore wind company. And Jeff told her, essentially, if you're looking for an industry to replace the coal plant, you should look at offshore wind. We have something that could help replace at least some of those jobs and some of that tax base this southern coast area of Massachusetts from Brayton Point over to New Bedford has a lot of great resources for the offshore wind industry. Uh, And so we began making the pitch about how offshore wind can help create some of the jobs that they've lost over the decades. Uh, And that was a pitch that really resonated, particularly because we're an ocean-based business and they're a coastal community with a history of going to the ocean. Pat Haddad, the lawmaker from Massachusetts, nicknamed the Queen of Coal, she found the arguments Jeff and other people in the business were making really compelling. Pat Haddad decided that offshore wind was worth looking into and taking seriously. She ended up writing a bill mandating that Massachusetts utilities purchase a big chunk of their electricity, enough to power over a million homes, specifically from offshore wind. What the bill did was bring 2,000 megawatts of offshore Mm -hmm. wind. It also um, had a provision for making sure that storage was also part of the solution. So all of this, you're going through all of this to sort of plug this one hole, Mm -hmm. which is sort of like there's a gigantic revenue hole that, that comes in your hometown from the loss of this coal plant. But there's lots of ways to plug a revenue hole. And you chose wind energy is sort of like your preferred solution to try to do that. And and, I, and it, it strikes me as you're talking that what really this is, is a bet on a certain version of the future. That mm. like, mm. there will be a day where there's lots of wind farms and they all need maintenance and they all need parts and componentry and they need an, a, a, cer- and a place to plug in a place to plug in and they need factories supplying them and your bet mm-hmm. is that like that place will be um, Somerset and New Bedford and Fall River and exactly. some of these other towns talk to me about like what that looks like what's the bigger picture behind what you're doing my vision is that all along the east coast of Massachusetts 
people are taking advantage and companies in the supply chain are taking advantage of actually coming to Massachusetts, setting up shop and being able to use the workforce from three, at least three other states. So that would be Maine, New Hampshire, Rhode Island and Connecticut. Pat was so committed to this new vision that she actually changed her nickname. She didn't want to be the queen of coal any longer. She wanted to be the witch of wind. The witch of wind. And she said there were a couple of reasons for this pretty dramatic title change. Mostly, she believed that wind could give her what coal used to, jobs and tax revenue for the community. But there's one reason Pat Haddad did not give for changing her nickname. Wind is way better for the climate. It's renewable energy. She didn't really mention that part to us. In fact, every time it came up, it was something that we brought up. And Jeff Grabowski, one of the guys who sold her on wind energy in the first place, says that's pretty common. If I don't have to talk about climate change, I usually don't because I find it to be a polarizing issue with some of the folks who I have to convince, frankly. It's so interesting that like one of the biggest and most impactful things that we can do and the energy generating side of things on the, in the, in, in yeah. the whole climate change um, fight, you know, we're going to make that argument without mentioning climate change a lot of the times, <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Here's the great thing about something like offshore wind, and it's not unique to offshore wind. Other clean technologies have a share of these attributes. There are a lot of good reasons to support it. It may be that offshore wind can produce a lot of jobs. And it may be that offshore wind can produce really cheap, competitive power. And it may be that, you know, the U.S. needs to be a technological innovator. We can't let the rest of the world innovate energy technology. We've got to do it as well. As a developer, I don't need you to agree with every reason. If I can, if if you're okay with one of them and you can support the project and be for this technology, awesome. That's a win. And it's these reasons that have nothing to do with saving the planet that are helping get other people in Somerset on board with Pat Haddad and her wind plan. People like this guy. It's very exciting to me. This is Ted Wheeler. Remember the mechanic who worked at the Brayton Point coal plant in Somerset? Yeah, he told us he used to be sort of skeptical about the term green jobs. But like Pat Haddad, he's become a convert. He's imagining all those windmills off the coast of his state. And he's thinking that someone's going to have to take care of those things. You know, if you think that these windmills, things are going to happen to them. They need supplies. They need people to go out and work on them. You know, they need the, the cables to be tended. They if there's guys out there, they need food. They need everything. You know, boats to go out there, helicopters. They're saying in Europe, um, like here we have whale watches. They have mm-hmm. uh, boats that travel out to see the windmills and things like that. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. So, it's like the Statue of Liberty, but it's clean energy. <laughs> there's going to be guys like you tourist attraction out of, out of one of those windmills, like talking to school school kids on a boat. Being like, did you have the wind for breakfast this morning? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. And there's one argument for wind that particularly appeals to Ted. And that is, it provides an opportunity to be in on the ground floor as this exciting industry takes root in America. 
you know, I worked in the coal plant and I said, wow, I wish I was here, you know, when they were designing all of this stuff. And now, you know, if you pay attention, you are here while they're designing the wind stuff. You know, and it, it's really exciting. And if you think uh, from the beginning of mankind, we always use fire for everything, for light, for heat, for cooking. Um, now, with the wind, uh, there's no fuel, no fire. If you think about that for a minute, that's uh, it's rather profound. It is profound. And for me, when he said that to us, my mind went to this trip I took a long time ago. Have you ever been inside an actual power plant, Ayana? No, have you? I have because I was a science teacher and I took my students one time to inside a nuclear power plant. Like I think one of the one of the parents worked at the plant or something. Yeah, it was really cool. And it was like way cooler for me than it was for them, (laughs) I think. Sounds right. And like you think of power plants and electricity as like these super complicated technological feats, and they are, but the actual principle at the heart of them is super simple. Like electricity generation is literally just a bunch of wires spinning in a circle inside a magnetic field. That's all it is. (laughs) That's what's making all of our electricity. And what they do in power plants is they just have to make the wires spin. And usually they do that by lighting big hot fires and making water boil. (laughs) That's literally, they're gigantic tea kettles. (laughs) When you put it that way, it sounds ridiculous and totally inefficient. (laughs) It's crazy. When I was inside this like power plant, I was like, we're doing all this technology. We're taking all this risk. We're like splitting atoms basically just so we can make it hot enough to boil water, to turn it into steam, to spin wires. That's so nuts. (laughs) (laughs) And that is what, Ted is saying what's profound is that with wind, you can skip the fire. You don't need to make a fire to spin the wires. You can just use the wind. And the crazy thing is the wind can actually make a ton of power. The turbines work super well now. And there's so much wind blowing, especially off the northeast coast of the U.S. In fact, scientists have calculated that there is enough potential energy to power not only all of Massachusetts, but also New York and Virginia and North Carolina, just from offshore wind. No coal or boiling water necessary. Okay, so we have all this potential for renewable power, and we have this community in Somerset that's shut down its coal plants and is trying to take advantage of that potential. But that's just one town in the United States. There are hundreds of coal-fired power plants all over the country. What's happening to them? To find out, we're going to spend the last few minutes of our episode with Marianne Hitt. She's at the Sierra Club, and she's been leading the Beyond Coal campaign there for about a decade now. And she says that coal plants all over the country are going the way of Brayton Point. There were 530 coal plants uh, in this country a decade ago, and 300 of those have now been retired or announced to retire. That's amazing. 300. We were getting half of our electricity from coal a decade Uh ago, and now it's a quarter of our electricity. And actually, since we spoke with her, another 17 coal plants have been retired. And now we're down from a quarter of our energy produced by coal to a fifth. A lot of the coal plants that shut down over the last decade have been replaced by the energy source that doomed Brayton Point, natural gas from fracking. But recently, more and more, towns and communities are making the choice that Somerset did to replace their coal plants with renewable energy, like offshore wind or solar. 
And that's because of one other argument for renewable energy. Renewable energy has gotten really cheap, largely because the technology's gotten better. Renewable energy is now as cheap or cheaper than any other energy source out there. And this drop in the price of renewable energy, both wind and solar, is a huge deal. And it has totally changed what seems possible. Even for longtime activists used to duking it out with fossil fuel energy executives like Marianne Hitt. It is really a huge reason to be hopeful. When you look at the amount of change that's happened in the last decade when renewable energy was more expensive than coal, Mm -hmm. imagine what we can do in the next decade. I just think that there's so much more possible than we can even imagine. I think in this climate conversation, there is a sense of in transitioning to a climate future that we can actually live on the earth in, a low or no carbon energy future, that that involves sacrifice. There is like this sort of like, we have to change our life. We have to go back to simpler times. We have to make our own clothes and recycle all the time. And like, don't, you know, we can't have any fun. Recycling actually not that hard. Whatever. I'm just like, <laughs> speak for yourself. Of all the things <laughs> to worry about. Making yeah. my own clothes, very hard. It's hard for me to see the numbers hard. on the bottom of the plastic. <laughs> You're going to get there. You have to take off your glasses. Sometimes your hands are dirty. Anyway, the but there's this idea that like, it's going to take this huge collective sacrifice and we're we're going to get there and we're going to feel virtuous but we're going to live in a world that's like more expensive and like worse and all this sort of stuff but that way of thinking about it is just not true can you paint us a picture of what it looks like if we get this right um so your electricity will stay on it will stay affordable so you won't notice that but what you will notice is cleaner air cleaner water being able to see farther, uh, being able to breathe more easily if you're a person with asthma or other health problems. Um, And I also think the other thing we would see is a change in our politics. If you don't have the coal and the fracked gas industry um, with a a grip on our electricity supply anymore, um, the kind of policies that we need, whether it's a price on carbon or stronger regulations, those become a lot more possible um, when you don't have this fossil fuel industry with a death grip on our electric grid that it has today. So Marianne, in in light of all that, I want to ask you a question that we ask almost everybody that comes on the show. How screwed are we? You know, I'm married to a biologist and uh, whenever I get to to, uh, grandiose, he reminds me there's a lot that's been set in motion that we can't undo. And I think... What an incredible time to be alive. What an incredible opportunity and a gift that we have to be the generation of people that turns the corner in that window before it's too late. And that is why I don't feel that we're totally screwed because we still have a chance to make a livable world for our kids. And in 20 years, it might be too late, but it's not too late today. I would bet you anything that we will have moved beyond coal in this country by 2030. And if we do the best work we can, we will be well on our way towards a power grid that is fueled by 100% clean energy. It doesn't require that we invent vast new things. It doesn't require that we overhaul our system of government. That is within our grasp with the tools that we have 
right now. We can do that. In other words, this transition from coal to renewable energy is certainly going to happen. The only question is how fast. The vision that Pat Haddad and Ted Wheeler see of thousands of offshore turbines powering a significant portion of the country, creating lots of jobs, it's still just a dream. There is a renewable energy company that's planning to build a big facility on the site of the old Brayton Point coal plant. Essentially, this facility is where all those offshore wind farms in Pat Haddad's vision would send their electricity to plug into the grid. But the problem is none of that electricity exists yet because none of the wind farms to make it exist yet either. There are proposals out there, but they're still waiting to get through the permitting process. The fact is, there are still lots of barriers to offshore wind in the U.S. Fossil fuel interests, outdated policy, basic inertia. Even though Americans are excited about this industry, according to polling from the think tank Data for Progress, 66% of Republicans and 72% of Democrats support offshore wind. And the more people demand this transition, the easier it becomes for politicians and folks in power to make it happen quickly. And so you might be sitting there thinking, but what can I do? Well, we got you. Our plan is to end every episode of How to Save a Planet with sharing an opportunity for you, Earthlings, to be part of the big picture changes we need. Opportunities to take action that will actually be meaningful. So for today's episode, we checked in with some of the folks we talked to in the episode to gather ideas for how people could get involved if they want to. So we asked Marianne Hitt from the Sierra Club how you might be able to help speed the transition away from coal. And she suggested that the Beyond Coal campaign could put you to work. You can check out opportunities to get involved if you're curious at sc.org slash coal to wind. And if you're curious about how to accelerate the transition to offshore wind, we asked Jeff Grabowski what you should do. And he said the best way to do it is to just keep an eye out for local projects in your area. And when there are meetings, go to them. Because he says, mostly the people who show up are the people who are trying to fight it for one reason or another. And so if you show up in support, it really helps. But Ayanna, you also have some resources that folks might want to check out about wind. Yeah, so when I'm not hanging out with our podcast crew, as founder of Urban Ocean Lab, I collaborate on nerdy policy memos. And we just teamed up with two think tanks, Data for Progress and Evergreen Action, to publish a short policy memo on offshore wind energy and how we might ramp that up more quickly. It's got maps about where it's the windiest and where companies are applying for permits to build more wind farms. So if you want to check that out and nerd out about wind energy, you can head to urbanoceanlab.org slash offshore wind. I think they got all that, right? They're probably taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. I hope you, so. If you didn't get all the details, we will put all of that in our show notes. If you look down at your smartphone right now, you'll see show notes. All this information is available there. And we'll be sharing all of this on social media too. Our handle is at how to, the number two, save a planet on Twitter and Instagram. And if you actually do go to any of these meetings or somehow get involved, we would love to hear your stories. Yes, Send us an email. Please. please do. Send us an email at howtosaveaplanet at spotify.com and tell us how it went, what you learned. How to Save a Planet is a Spotify original podcast and a Gimlet production. It's hosted by me, Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. And me, Alex Bloomberg. 
Our reporters and producers are Kendra Pierre-Lewis, Rachel Waldholtz, and Anna Ladd. Our senior producer is Lauren Silverman. Our editor is Caitlin Kenny. Sound design, mixing, and original music by Emma Munger. Additional music by Bobby Lord, Katherine Anderson, and Billy Libby. Our fact checker this episode is James Gaines. Special thanks to Holly McNamara, Blythe Terrell, and Devin Taylor. And thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next week. 